On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it not become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yet borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shittiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Ash. Let's put our hands together and thank Ash for anchoring and reading that passage this morning. There are some uh, big names in there. And uh, as I'm sitting there listening to this, I'm thinking, you know what? I, I, if I was hearing this for the very first time, I'd also be thinking, wow, don't quite have my head around all of that. You know, hey, before we dive into this passage this morning, I just want to share just a, a little bit of church news with us. Uh, late last night, uh, I received the news, uh, quite sadly, that the son of Terry and Carol Barnes, Gary, had passed away yesterday. And I know some of you may be hearing this for the very first time, you know Terry and Carol really well. Uh, and so can I ask us as a church to be praying for them? Gary has been sick for a long period of time. But yet his passing yesterday came quite suddenly and unexpected. And uh, so it's kind of caught them by surprise and uh, it's quite shocking for them as well too. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, we are a family. We look out for one another, we pray for one another, we hold one another up in these times. And they're going to be needing uh, our thoughts and our prayers as they walk through this season as well. You know, this week uh, has uh, been a, a great week uh, for me. I've, I've had my granddaughter uh, around uh, over the past four or five days. Uh, my uh, Jess and Camille in Melbourne had said, hi, oh, Dad, we've got a busy weekend. Uh, do you think you could look after Chicago? Which I said, you know, that'd be fine. Not realising all the things that I had going on in my life as well too. Uh, going up to winter camp for a day, preaching this weekend, uh, Julie leading worship, Nexus. But I said, that's fine. And we've had a great time with her. Do you know what? I, I've just got a great affinity for our young families this morning sitting here in church. As I kind of got up early, I'm finishing off my message. I've got Chicago in one hand and 
Uh, do you know what? It is a challenge for young families. So if you're here this morning and you're not a young family, and you see a young family, you cheer them on today and tell them they are doing an excellent job as parents. And they can't wait for kids' church for next week either. I get that too. Yeah, I got a question for us this morning, just to kind of dive before we, as we dive into this passage, and it's simply this: you know, What is it that you want in life? You know, uh, there's any number of things that you could want in life, uh, uh, and how you might answer that question. How you lean into that question is really, really important. You see, uh, because if you ask for the wrong thing, life can go pear-shaped for you. You know, on our screens this morning, there's a picture of King Midas. Uh, If you are young enough, or you might remember the story of King Midas and the Golden Touch. Great kid's story. It's a story as parents or grandparents, you know what, we might have told to our kids because it teaches great morals. What's the story of King Midas? Well, look, Put it really simply, King Midas was a very wealthy man. He's a king. In fact, King Midas was a true person. But the story that's developed around him, he had so much wealth, but he was still unhappy. And so there was just one thing that he wanted in life. He wanted more money. He wanted everything that maybe he might touch could turn to gods. Sometimes you might think like that as well too. Gee, it'd just be a bit nice if I could just, and I'd have that. Well, his wish was granted to him, and so uh, he began touching things all over the place, just having a wonderful time. Touch this, and became gold. Touch this, became gold. You know, all of our gold prospectors out there, imagine if you just picked up a rock, and suddenly that was like this giant nugget. You'd be rejoicing over all of that. But as King Midas found, you know what, uh, trying to eat food that had been turned to gold or to relate to somebody that had been turned to gold, it was just all a bit too much. It didn't work. And he began to realize that what he had wished for wasn't really a good thing at all. You know, I wonder what it is this morning that you might find yourself wanting or wishing for. You know, uh, before I, let me tell you what I'm wishing for today. As you think about maybe what your answer might be to that. You see, for me, What I want more than anything else in life, and it's not just to see Essendon get another flag or to have more grandchildren or whatever that might be. You know what I really want in life? What I really covet, what what I'm really seeking and chasing is that I, I want God's blessing in my life. You see, as I think about that and and, uh, pursuing that or coveting that in my own life, I've I've realized over the years that it doesn't matter whether you're uh, wealthy or poor, whether you are healthy or ill, whether you live in a mansion or your your house is rather humble. You see, if you've got God's blessing in your life, if you've got God's favor over your life, then it doesn't matter the external circumstances around you because you've got something that the world can't give or take away from your life. You've got his blessing. You've got his favor. And as we dip into this last part of Haggai's story, we find that as it rolls its way out, Haggai's speaking about the blessing of God over the lives of these people. And as we dig a bit deeper, we begin to realize that inside of this story, Haggai tells us how we can acquire or have God's blessing on our lives. He shows us what it looks like to have the favor of God upon our lives. Now, these Israelites, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you'll know the story that's been unfolding in the book of Haggai, but it's only two chapters, 38 verses, but it captures the picture of a returned group of exiles from Babylon. 
They've been carried off into Babylonian captivity. It had been prophesied. All the major prophets have been saying to them, Israel, turn your life around. Get your priorities right. Get your eyes on God. Because if you don't, there's going to be some consequences for all of that. Well, they didn't turn around. Well, they, they did from time to time. But ultimately, in the end, they still disobeyed God. And so God let them to be carried off into Babylonian captivity. And after 70 years, God had also told them this, that after 70 years, he would bring them back into the promised land. And so this story of Haggai, Haggai is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament towards the end. This story of Haggai and then other prophets such as Ezra kind of captures some of what happens as they return. Now, these people were good people. They were good people. Because you think about it, this is a remnant, 50,000 people who had been living in Babylon who actually chose to leave uh, uh, this great lifestyle of living in Babylon some 70 years later because they'd gotten married, they'd settled down, they'd had kids, and now life was going well for them. 50,000 of them decided, many stayed stay behind, hundreds of thousands stayed behind, but 50,000 of them decided to come back to the promised land, back to a land that was really desolate. Jerusalem was just, it was in ruins. The, the temple was uh, just demolished. It was gone. But they came back with God's vision to rebuild this temple. Well, as they came back, it all kind of started really well. They began to rebuild the altar and the foundation. They were starting and leaning into this when suddenly some opposition came at them again. And so they pulled back from that. And for the next 15 to 16 years, we're told in the book of Haggai, they got on with building their own homes while the house of God stood in ruins. And Haggai was God's appointed individual to come and challenge them about that, to say, you know what? You've got your priorities all wrong. What are you doing? You're more focused on your own lives than you are on my own house. And so this remnant, just a small group of them, got together and they started to keep rebuilding that. But they became quite discouraged in the midst of that because as they, they thought about the old temple, Solomon's temple, which was massive. Pastor Donna talked about that this last weekend, just helping us to get a picture of how big this temple really was. Well, this one that they are really building was really quite underwhelming. And so as they're building that, they're, they're, they're quite discouraged, thinking, you know what, this isn't really that much at all. And really, it's just a shadow of what the last one used to be. And, and they were despondent. And so Haggai speaks back into that, brings another message from God who says to them, Do you know what? don't worry about that. It doesn't matter how big it is. The fact that you are rebuilding this temple, my presence is going to be in this place. And you don't know this, but this temple... Uh, uh, my glory is going to reside upon this temple in, in an even greater way than it ever did in Solomon's temple. And God's speaking about a, a, a messianic, it's a messianic promise. It's the coming of Jesus. And so they got on with the task. And as we come to this last part of the passage today, we have uh, God coming back to this, uh, this remnant of people through Haggai with a third and a fourth message about his blessing for them. You know, he shows us in this how we can, we, we, can, we can seek God's favor and God's blessing upon our lives as well too. So let's have a look at this. Stick around in this story for just a moment today. You know, uh, it was three months, we're told, to the day. Three months since the people had resumed work on the temple site with new resolve. 
And the project had advanced sufficiently that I got it to this place where the altar uh, is in place, the foundations are in place, and now towards the end of Haggai chapter 2, the people are gathering together for this service of celebration. A little bit like what we're going to do in just a few weeks' time when we're going to gather in the city. And uh, in the Alumbra Theatre, we're going to pack that place out and we're going to celebrate and give thanks to God for all that He has done over 170 years of ministry. Well, these people, they're, they're gathering and they're worshipping God. And it's in this space that the, the prophet comes back with, a, with, a, with another message. And in fact, these two messages, one that was directed at the priests, and then another was directed at this governor called Zerubbabel, they're, they're linked to this common theme of God's blessing. So just kind of hold on to that as we talk about it. The first message delivered by Haggai begins with two questions for the priests. Let's just read that again. The first question begins in verse 12, and he says, If someone carries consecrated, or that's another word for holy, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of their garments, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? Does it become holy? Question. In other words, is that food made holy by virtue of simply being touched by this holy food? And the priests answered by saying, well, no, it doesn't. Then Haggai asked a second question, and he said, If a person who has been defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, these items of food, does it become defiled? To which the priest replied, yes, it becomes defiled. Now let's just pause there for a moment. And we're going to remember that these priests were accustomed to dealing with the complexity of the Leviticus law. The law that God had given to them through Moses about how they would conduct themselves. And so for them, answering questions about what was holy and what was not holy was something that, you know, it just kind of, it was a no-brainer for them. For us, we'd be like, huh, what? If you've got something in your pocket that's holy and it touches something outside of your pocket that's not holy, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about a principle of transmission. And, and that's something that we would clearly understand in our, our culture today. For example, a sick child cannot catch health from a healthy child. But the healthy child can certainly become sick or unwell after encountering another sick child. We know how that works, don't we? Parents, you've seen that happen before. You've gone to a party with your kids and they've been fine and you've come home that night and within the next uh, 24 hours, they're vomiting all over the place. Something has happened in that environment that they have caught. Or another way, if I am healthy and you have the flu, my coughing in your face is not going to make you well again. I'm sure you probably don't want me to do that. But you coughing in my face is going to make me sick. You know, two weekends ago, I was away on the young adults camp. We had a great time, you know, 30 of us up in the mountains. And uh, do you know what? Uh, I realized as I was going there that this was just going to become a, uh, a petri breeding dish of all kinds of things. And I came home and yes, within three or four days, well, I was sick because there were people there that weren't quite well either. And so we just kind of all caught that. You see, that's the principle of transmission. And it works in one direction. In other words, the good can't turn the bad good, but the bad can certainly turn the good bad. You with me? You know, maybe another great example of that is, uh, you know what, uh, if I was to wander into our kitchen here at the church this morning and I realized that we had two liters of milk that had been sitting in there since Easter time, it was out of date, and I was looking at thinking, should we use that this morning? 
I'm thinking, well, that's probably, no, that's probably not a really good thing. No one's wanting any uh, kind of oat milk, skinny lattes, whatever it might be today. So probably not a good thing. But then I had a brainwave and thought, you know what? Hey, we've got four or five liters of good milk here. What if I put the bad milk with the good milk? That's been a good steward of God's resources, isn't it? You know, more's going to go around. I can see your faces right now. You, you are realizing, I hope he's not serious. You know, we wouldn't do that, would we? Because we know that putting bad milk in good milk doesn't make the bad milk good. It doesn't work that way. It would be terrible. We've all, ta- oh, we've all taken the lid off the top of milk before, haven't we? And smelt that and gone, oh gosh, I'm not putting that on my wheat bix this morning. You know, putting bad milk in good does not make suddenly the, the, the bad milk good. Well, what's the point? Well, this is what Haggai is saying. You see, if you put something into your pocket that is holy and that touches something that is unholy, it doesn't make that the unholy thing holy. See, holiness is not contagious, but impurity or corruption is. And what's the point? Well, the point becomes really clear in verse 14. If you've got your Bible or your device, Haggai, God says through Haggai these words, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and they offer, it is defiled. Now, what's happening? Well, see, you've got to remember that since their return or while they've been living in Babylon, they longed for this day that they would eventually get back to the Holy Land, back to their promised land. That was was the desire of their hearts. And while some of them died in Babylon, there were generations that grew up that heard about the stories of the Holy Land. And and there were some 50,000 that then made their way back. They wanted to go back to this land of blessing, this place where God's favor was. And so in their minds, they're thinking, you know what? If we just get back to the city, if we just get this temple rebuilt, then just our proximity in that location, it's going to mean that everything's going to go well for us in our lives. Well, that wasn't the case. And God's trying to get their attention in this moment. You see, he's reminding them that their presence in this land did not make everything that they did holy. Living in this holy land and offering up sacrifices at the prescribed time would not make this group of people suddenly now acceptable to God as long as their hearts were not clean or right with God's. And so Haggai then goes on and says these words to this group of people. He says, now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid upon another in the Lord's temple. He's pushing them back. You know, think back 15, 16 years ago. Think, think back beyond this. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. And when anyone came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thoughts. You see, they're all gathered here in this space, and so God's saying, give careful thoughts. And he asks the question, is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, but from this day on, I will bless you. Now, I want you to notice something in this passage of Scripture right here. It's a phrase that Haggai uses on at least three occasions. 
And with the entire 38 verses, you see it on five occasions, but it's that phrase, you might have caught it. He says, give careful thoughts. Or your translation might, consider your ways. What's he saying? In one sense, he's urging them to wake up to themselves. He's saying, look back over the years of drought and frustration, and you will see that all of your problems began when you set aside the rebuilding of God's temple, when you chose your own priorities over God's priorities. That's when your problems started to come back again. But it's all about to change, says Haggai. From this day on, I will bless you. God promises a blessing to his people if they got their priorities back in order with him and with his work. Now, the people had begun to obey some three months prior to this, but they still hadn't seen the results. They were back doing the work of God again. So what's God do? He graciously assures them that from this day forward, that this day, this moment, as they were gathering in a celebration over the laying of the foundation of the altar, that from this day forward, it would mark a turning point in their relationship with him. From this day forward, his blessing would fall on them if they acted as he required. He said, I'll bless you. And then on that same day, hey guys, already given a third message, uh, he comes back with a fourth message, which wasn't now directed at the priests. It's directed at Zerubbabel. Well, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and it would be the entire group. It was a message for all of them, but it was directed at Zerubbabel. And God said, tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn, overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. Yeah, it must have been easy for this group of returned exiles to have, thought, to have felt rather insignificant now back in this land. To think that, you know, really we're just pawns and spectators in the midst of all of this. But God wanted to show them right here in this moment that even though this temple hadn't been rebuilt again at this point, he wanted them to know that though they were small in the eyes of the superpowers of this world, they were servants of the God of all power. And they were on the winning side. God says to them, I'm going to overthrow the chariots. Don't worry. You know, and all their riders, it's going to come to nothing. You know, I am going to have my way. So you don't need to worry about these hostile or these big nations around you. But instead, I want you to hang on to this promise. And in verse 23, God says, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. What was God declaring through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel and to these people? Well, God's telling Zerubbabel that he is going to bless him. And he's going to raise him up in a powerful way to be somebody significant in this world. He's going to raise him up in such a way that this person is going to come. That person is not there yet, but a powerful person is going to come who is a chosen one for the work of the Lord. Now, why did God choose to work through Zerubbabel? It's just a man that kind of comes and goes. 
Well, history tells us that Zerubbabel was of the lineage. He was of the line of David. And as such, he was a precursor of the Messiah. That was his link. You see, this was the ultimate and the grandest blessing that God could give to this faithful remnant. To this group that had gone back to Israel to live right there in that city and to rebuild the temple. You know, he tells them that if you, if, you, if you follow me and if you prioritize my way and you live according to my ways, then I'm going to bless you. But then he comes with even a greater and a grander blessing on top of all of that. He promises to send them an anointed king who would rule over them and would provide for all of their needs. Who is Haggai speaking about? He's speaking about Jesus. The Lord was going to act through this faithful remnants, and from among them, he would raise up the Messiah. And this vision, and this vision of future victory was given to them in this moment to spur them along with a renewed sense of vision. It's beautiful, isn't it? So much packed into 38 verses, two chapters, 38 verses. So much of the story of God's people, of what God was doing in and through his people, the work of renewal that he was doing in and through his people. Promises that God gave to them in that moment that would be uh, a sense of his material blessing upon their lives as they got to the work of the temple and as they'd been putting things in place and being obedient to God. But also this sense of favor or ultimate blessing, this, this blessing that was prophesied, it was spoken over that, that as you do this, this is what's going to happen. So as we think about the story, a story that is not really, well, it's not our story. It's a long way removed from our story. But what does their story teach us today about acquiring the blessing of God, the favor of God in our lives? You know, what, what does it show to us as a, as a teenager or as a young adult or as a married couple? As a couple with young kids and families or to a maturing couple or, or people that are in the senior years of their life, what's it say to us about the blessing or the favor of God upon our lives? You know, as I wrap this up this morning, I, I want to push around and just a, a couple of lessons that I think I see right here in this story that I think have great application for our lives. Regardless of where we might find ourselves today, regardless of whether we feel like we're doing well, we're succeeding, uh, whether we, know we feel like life is really tough, wherever it might find ourselves, a couple of applications that I think speak into our lives uh, uh, no matter what we might face. And the first lesson is this about God's blessing. As I think about it, it reminds me that God blesses those who put him first. Or you could say, you could add to that, that God blesses those who put him first in all things. Now, we see that right here in this story. In fact, we see it in both a negative and a positive way. Let me, let me just talk about the, the negative way for a moment. I, I think I need to at least reference that before I land in a positive way. You see, when, as we follow the story, when we disobey or fail to put God first, it's really clear in this story that he brings discipline into our lives to get our attention. You see that early in the story. If you've got your Bible, your device open, uh, in uh, verse 9, God kind of asks this question. He says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. 
what you brought home, I just, I, I blew it away. Why? Because my house, my own house that I've asked you to rebuild, it still lies in ruins. Well, you're just busy about your own homes, about your own priorities, doing your own thing. And then he says it again a little bit later on, but he just kind of comes at it in a different way. Uh, he says to them, you know, you think about it, when, when you would come home and you would go looking, you would go looking at a heap of 20 measures, but there were only 10. Or when you went looking uh, to a wine vat to draw out 50 measures, but there were only 20. Why was all of that? I struck the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, and yet you still did not return to me. See, what's going on? Well, this group of people had put their own pleasure and comfort ahead of God's kingdom, and so he sent his discipline, not his blessing, to get their attention. God sometimes does that in those ways in our lives. But here's the positive example of this. But when we obey God and we put him first in all things, we also see in this story that he chooses to bless us. The people of God have begun to obey God in all things. So what's he say to them? He responds with grace and favor in their lives. And through the prophet Haggai says, but from this day forward, I will bless you. See, that tells me that when we trust God, when we obey his word, when we depend on him and we put him first in all things, then his work in our lives often defies human explanation. See, that's his blessing. There, there will be stories in here and stories online today of people that could actually speak to that very thing. You know, I've got the same stories too of, of how at different times in my life I've just seen God's favor and blessing. There's no explanation for it, but it comes out of that place. I truly believe that when we, when we live by putting him first in all things, when we rely on his word, when we depend upon him, when we follow him in, obedi in, in obedience, there is a blessing or a favor that comes. Now I can sense a question that maybe sits out there today that needs to be posed. But Dave... What about all of those godly people who have sought first the kingdom of God and yet in their own lives, their lives seem to be fruitless or they have lived with all kinds of trials and troubles? You know, where's the blessing of God on their lives, Dave? How do you explain that? And my response is, well, I can't explain that. But here's what I can explain. You see, as I look at this story and think about it, uh, you've got to think about it through the lens of this group of people, this, this, this remnant. They were only a small remnant, uh, and, and we cannot forget that these Jews were still living uh, in Persian-occupied territory. There were enemies all around them. And the promises that God had made to this group of people, none of them were ever going to see them. The promise that God gave to them through Zerubbabel, they wouldn't be around to see that the glory of Jesus filled this temple, but it still didn't negate the promise that God had given to them. Therefore, while it's true, as you read this story, that God can and will bless his obedient servants on earth, and sometimes he does that in ways that provide many different things for us, I think it's fair to say that it's only in eternity that it's going to truly reveal what God does 
with our acts of sacrifices upon the altar, those sacrifices where we put him first in all things. Does that make sense? Sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. And so we have to hold on to that truth, onto that principle that, you know what, in spite of what maybe I'm experiencing in my life, God's word is still true. And so I'm going to hang on with faith and continue to keep putting him first in all things because I know that's where the blessing and the favor sits. That's the first thing I see. Here's the second thing. See, I think this story demonstrates that God blesses those who put him first in holy living. Who put him first in lives that are desire to, to be lived in a holy way. God blesses those who pursue uh, living holy lives. Now, what's the kind of holy living that God is looking for? Well, you'd be glad to know today that I don't think God is saying that all of us must leave here and go and live in a monastery amongst people who are aspiring to live holy lives. Now, could be a good thing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with hanging out with good people and uh, the choices of good people can often rub off in our lives in a really good way versus going and hanging out with a whole bunch of people that aren't choosing to live in a good way. But you see, that's the point of this story is that just by uh, living in close proximity to a group of good, good people, that doesn't suddenly make you holy, does it? And neither is God saying to us today, well, you better get to work and you better start doing a whole bunch of different things in the life of the church, you know, you know more, more and more activities because that's going to make you holy. No, no. You know, that's been the problem, I think. And that's the challenge that many of us live with is that we can turn up here and we can watch online today and we can appear to be ticking all the right boxes and still be so far away from God. You see, that's not what holiness is. So what's the kind of holiness that God is looking for today? The kind of holiness that he really wants in each of our lives has to be inwards, not outwards. We often look at the outward activity, but God looks at the hearts. In other words, it's not just good enough to build his temple. We must build it from hearts that truly please him. And that was the word of challenge that was coming to this group of people. That's what pleases him. And that's what releases his blessing in our lives. So how can you and I today make sure that our heart is right with God? It's a good question, isn't it? You know, on five occasions in this entire uh, story, God asks this question. Give careful consideration to your ways. Give careful thought to the way in which you're living. In essence, he's saying, hey, take stock. Think deeply about your life. You know, pause here in this moment and think, well, am I living in a way that's honoring to God?" And I think that's true for us today as we think about, you know, am I living a holy life? You know, from time to time, it's really good for us to take some inventory of our own lives, of our own hearts. I can't do that for you, but you can certainly do that of yourself. I've got to take care of my own hearts. And we do that by asking maybe questions simply like this. Is my heart right with God? You know, that is a huge question. Because if you're not in a relationship with God, then ultimately God's word says that your heart's not right with him. And he wants your heart, he wants to be in relationship with you. Is your heart right with God? Or maybe the questions kind of come in a bit of a different way. It's around, uh, you know, is it the, the things that I'm doing? You know, are they honoring to God's? 
that the choices that I'm making on a Friday night or a Saturday night versus Sunday morning, is that honouring to God? Or the way in which I'm speaking? Or, or it might even be, you know, what is it that I'm allowing myself to look at? Allowing my mind to go to those places, you know, all of those things. We can look great on the outsides. We can put on our weekend best. We can turn up and go, do you know what? looks like Dave's got it all together. But you know, God doesn't care about what the outside looks like. He cares about the heart. In Psalm chapter 24, David, who's writing this psalm, he says, you know, who can ascend into the house of God? Who can, who can walk up to his holy temple? And he writes this line, only those who have a pure and clean heart. See, ultimately, that's, that's all that God wants from us. He wants our hearts. Being right always comes before doing right, in that sense. Being right. Are you right today? Now, what is it that you want? What is it that you want in life? It's a good question to think about, isn't it? It's a question in one sense that was being posed to this group of believers who had kind of returned to Jerusalem. God had called them to get back to rebuilding that temple and had given them some wonderful promises. And they had to think about, well, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to respond? And so maybe for us today, as we think about that question that I started with, what is it that I want in life? You know, there's lots of fun things we can have in life. We can have holidays, we can have homes, we can have brand new cars, we can have relationships, we can have kids and grandkids, you know, all of those things. In one sense, that's God's blessing. But you know what? Whether you've got money or whether you don't, whether you've got health or whether you don't, you see... Those things don't determine, in one sense, whether we've got God's favour or blessing. Those things kind of come and go. We're told in the Scriptures that one day all those things will just kind of burn up. Is our heart right with God? I don't know about you, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep pushing around with a few questions here for just a moment. Yeah? Do you want God's favour and blessing over your life? Maybe over your family? These are rhetorical questions. Do, do you want God's favour and blessing uh, over a relationship or over your marriage? Do you want God's blessing over your job or your ministry or the things that maybe are going on in that space for you? See, my answer to many of those things will be, yes, God, that's what I want. I want to live in such a way that I would know that regardless of the outcome, that I am living in a way that pleases you. And so today, the only way of maybe answering that question for yourself as you think about that is to really say, well, am I willing to be the, the kind of person that God can bless? Am I willing to be that? Because that takes sacrifice so as we finish this morning does God need to do a work of renewal in your life today 
You know, I could keep asking all kinds of questions and pushing around, but you know, in the end, it's got to be the work of the Spirit in your life around how you're living, what you're prioritizing, what is your, you know, all of those things. The Spirit of God will let you know right now in this moment whether you're, li- you're living your life in a way that pleases Him. As our team comes back this morning, as we uh, kind of wrap up with my, one of our last songs today, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. And I want to kind of hold us here for just a moment. I'm going to ask us maybe just to bow our heads right where we are. And all I'm asking you to do is to think carefully about your life and to say, am I willing to be the kind of person to pursue being the kind of person? This is not works oriented, but am I willing to be the kind of, to pursue being the right person that God could bless? See, we see clearly in this story that God chooses to pour His favor out on those who put Him first and those who prioritize putting Him first in holy living. That's where the blessing sits. It works that way for individuals. And can I tell you, it works that way for the church too. Give you a moment to just uh, talk to God. Father, we thank you for the work of your spirit right here in this room right now. For the words that you are speaking into the lives of maybe children, teenagers, young adults, married couples, older couples, retirees. Father, thank you for the reminder today that you don't care so much about what we do, but you care about who we are. And you want our hearts to be right. Father, some of us that are hearing this message right now are realizing that you need to do a work of renewal in our lives. We're realizing that our priorities have been all mixed up. We've been pursuing the wrong things and we've lost sight of you even though we would call ourselves followers of Christ. Father, would you renew the hearts and minds of those people? May this be the day in their lives where they declare, they know that from this day forward, God, they're walking in your favor. They're walking in your blessing. God, they're trusting the fruit of what all that might be in their lives to you. That They're just going to keep walking by faith, independence upon you as they follow you. Father, maybe there are others here today that as they think about that question, is my life right with God? And they know deep down that they have never placed their saving trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And they've sat here and they've heard your word spoken. And they realize that there's a restlessness in their own spirit because right now their heart is not right with you. God, would you make this the moment for them? where they say, you know what, I am attending to that. I'm acknowledging that Jesus Christ, you are the Savior of the world. You are that one that was spoken about through Zerubbabel, that would come and live. He was a real person. 
He would come and live and die for me on that cross at Calvary so that I might enjoy a full relationship with God. Father, if there are people in here and online right now that are acknowledging that, God, would you, uh, by your Spirit, come into their lives and would you remind them that from this day forwards, you're going to bless them, whatever that might look like. Father, I'm praying for us as a church that, God, that your Spirit would just blow through this place and that you would continue to do your work of renewal. Father, in 170 years, there's parts of our story and our history that's not great. There's been moments when we haven't responded appropriately. But God, we thank you that you haven't deserted us and that your favour still sits on this place. And Father, I pray that you would uh, grant wisdom and courage to leaders that lead this place. God, would you give insights. Uh, God, supernaturally, God, would you be at work in ways that God, it's just evident that it's your favour that sits upon this place. God, we long for you to to continue to keep doing your work in and through us. We long to see more people come into faith in your son, Jesus. We long to see more people stepping into the waters of baptism, acknowledging their their love of Christ. Father, we long to see more people putting their hands up and saying, but as for me and my house, I am going to serve the Lord. God, would you do that in and through us, we pray. Would you move by your Spirit in a mighty way so that it is so obvious that we can't explain it in a human way, but it defies our own logic, but it's obvious that you are at work. It's your favour. God, we long for your favour. We long for your blessing, not so that we might become healthy and wealthy. God, it's got, no, we, God we just long for your presence. We long to see you at work in a powerful way and we ask that you would pour out your Spirit in a fresh and a new way upon all of our lives. Father, we offer that up to you today. That is our our offering. That is our sacrifice that we place upon the altar of our own lives and our own hearts. Come and have your way with us, we pray. May you be glorified like you have never been glorified in and through the life of this place and the people that call Benigo Baptist your home, their home. We pray that today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.